and welcome to Community Quest episode 289. I'm your host, the worst host ever, Mike Fs, aka Wheels, and with me as always. Uh, still gunning for that worst host ever position, Danny Carney, Grandma Master. Sorry, the position is filled. And in a very distant third of this competition, uh, your manager pen, Gaiji Nogatari, Michael Baker. Very distant third out of three. Yes, this is a course in reference to fucking up last episode. So I had two games playing at once, and the volume for one game was going to the stream, but not to my ears. So that fucked up the first five minutes of that show recording. Whoops. Sure not playing multiple games at once. I have, but I was trying to finish Cthulhu Saves Christmas before... Uh, the the backtrack. <laughs> I bet so, it's good. It's a good backtrack. Highly recommend people check it out. It's, uh, did not did not. Very fun game. The, the, the real question was how'd that go in terms of finishing it before the backtrack? I did finish it beforehand. Congrats. <clears throat> yeah. I guess that answered some of what you've been playing. Yes, I have been playing that. Um, and uh, oh god, the toddler's waking up already. Uh, but somebody else can start while I go take care of child. Which one's playing, Gadget? Oh, the same thing I've been playing for the last two months almost. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed. That's the pattern. <laughs> yes, but I'm uh, currently in the waiting period before I can challenge the end of the casino level. Mm. Hope you got your uh, ducks in a row with regard to uh, some of the S links you need if you want to unlock the uh, bonus content. Almost certainly not. Um, <clears throat> especially in very one specific one in particular, probably. Um, unless I can manage to make up three link levels in like two weeks. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not quite sure when the cutoff date is, so. Which one are you uh, referring to? Boy Detective. Uh, I think he's Justice. Yeah. You get uh, you get some like what's your actual rank with him? Uh, at the moment, uh, let's see where we go. Justice. Um, okay, six. Okay, I think at least yeah. I'm trying to remember what the actual rank you need. <clears throat> Is. Let me double check. And he's got uh, got four more stars on his list. Also, yeah, every time I've actually gone to him and tried talking to him in the past month, he's been too busy to do anything. Yeah, at least a couple of his are actually uh, resolved on. Uh, at least a couple of his are resolved on like the day of. Okay, that's good to know. Other than that, um, I've got Faith maxed out. I've got Sun maxed out. I've got everything. I've got several nines at this mm -hmm. point, two of which are not going to, to go anywhere except for plot purposes. I mean, Fool and Magician. And um, Chariot and Death are both at nine. Need to need to go check out Mishima again to the moon again. How's the Counselor doing? Nine. Okay. I'm not really worried about him at this point. 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's probably fine. Yeah, I already got the notice that he will be out of the office from the 18th. Yeah. Which means just the next time I have a chance, I'm going to level him up and it'll be that. The moment since I had three extant bounties in Mementos, I'm taking those out now. Mm -hmm. And just finally got the last star in area four. Uh -oh. Making good progress. Okay, what's the actual cutoff date? <laughs> Yeah, it seems like you might be able to make justice happen if you just keep checking in with them. Mm -hmm. You only need to be at rank 8 by that point. Okay, uh, what what's the date on that point? Uh, I believe he's you need to essentially have him done a few days before the cutoff, basically. The, like, okay, when, like... The, when the palace is supposed to be. Okay, that's two weeks from now. Yeah, so might be possible. I think he, I think he opens up a bit during that period just to give people a last-minute chance to get him done. I figured it may not even be possible before that point because again, I was checking him out when his mm -hmm. icon was the card on the map, and he kept yeah. saying that he was busy. Yeah, that'll happen. And that's usually a sign that okay, I need to progress a plot point first. Mm -hmm. Had no idea what plot point was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you're back, Wheels. Yeah. <sighs> I assume P5 is all you've been playing, Gaijin? Uh, pretty much, but um, the ladies just went to Grandma's house this morning, so I'll probably just get out the PlayStation 3 and do a Blade in the Darkness for a bit this weekend. Fair enough. What about you, Wheels? What you've been playing? Uh, in addition to finishing Cthulhu Saves Christmas, I've obviously been playing Destiny, but no one too interested with that. Uh, I will fight with you if you talk about that for too long. Nice. I don't have a lot to talk about with that this week anyway, but uh, my wife for Christmas got me Marvel Midnight Suns oh, yeah, PS5. Uh, so I've been playing that, which is... Uh, not what I expected totally, but it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously it's it's by Firaxis, so it's a tactics turn-based game of some yeah. manner. Um, yes, but it's a lot of it's card-based, and there's not necessarily yeah, that's where I checked out when I read right. that. <laughs> there's not and there's also not necessarily a lot of like moving characters around, although you can. It's more like uh, like, uh, how do I explain this? It's the way it differs from being just like a straight card game is like, oh, this card game makes when you use this attack, it'll knock this character back, and then you know that's going to depend on you know the environment and what where other characters are, so you can knock a character into another one and things like that. So, um. It feels like it uses its status as a card game and as a turn-based tactics game in a very interesting way. Um, so it doesn't feel like, oh, this should just be like a straight-up card game, or it doesn't feel like 
it doesn't feel like the card game aspect is thrown in, is what I'm trying to say. It feels like they actually thoughtfully put put this game together the way it is. So, I don't trust it, but I'll trust you. No, I understand, and <laughs> it, it, I don't think it's necessarily going to be for everyone, um, but it's uh, so far it's been a lot of fun. It's got it's got some really fun dialogue. Like it's got uh, I don't know who's playing Tony Stark in this, but they but um, he's pretty funny, and they uh, they do the whole thing like introducing characters, and when they introduced him, it was like the guy in the armor or something, because some magic-based character just called called him that or something. I, I'm not explaining this terribly well, but suffice to say that the writing and like the story and some comedy in the game seemed to be very nice so uh it's it's very good uh i definitely recommend people check it out um it's uh it's i wouldn't say it's exactly using the full power of the ps5 so um that kind of honestly ease, eases my worries for the eventual Switch version that's supposed to come out. So for any people yeah, that are waiting for that, around the same time as yeah, phone version. yeah. Uh, so that should be good though. It's it's a it's a really very fun game, and um, although I, it would be nice to have just like a straight up Marvel XCOM-ish game, you know, I can't say I'm necessarily <laughs> disappointed with this one either. So mm-hmm. it's cool. People should check it out. Yeah. Um, and it looks like it might have like some deep cuts too. Like it's got the the X Men named Magic. I don't even. I have no idea when that character was even introduced. To be honest. Is magic spelled stupid. M I M A G I. I think it's just M I G I K maybe. I don't know. It's not even yeah. magic, it's just magic. Okay. Yeah. Younger sister Colossus looks like. Weird. Something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, obviously, it's got Blade in it. It's got multiple Ghost Riders, I think. There's a lot of Ghost Riders running yeah. around. Or riding around, just in case, maybe. Good yeah, stuff. Uh, yeah, and it'd be nice if there were more Marvel games more often, and nice variety. Hopefully, we nice get more. Like yeah. yeah. Yes. Which I guess the current rumors is that's going to get end of life next year. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's not the worst game or anything. It's just. I mean, for a, for a. Surface game that just doesn't seem to have any real constituency, which is kind of a big no. Right there. <clears throat> Should have just been an offline game. Should have. Yeah. Probably would have been cheaper. Yep. Huh. Well, yeah. I think speaking this... of good news on the console versus um, smartphone game front, iGames games had a lot of things to talk about the other day. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. And the thing that was had me happy was that the was it the president of the company or something? He actually said something about Metal Max being definitely for consoles. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if there is eventually a Metal Max smartphone game 
from fighting. But I mean, but that the focus is yeah. The, that would on. probably be as a tie-in slash advertisement for the console. Yeah. I mean, just like the uh, the three, um, the one cell phone and two smartphone games that do exist for the overall franchise. Yeah. As opposed to uh, the, the... But what actually caught my eye a lot was the logo that they used. Um, mm -hmm. It had, like, Psy Games and Metal Max, and they had these little little pixel art versions of the main characters from the Metal Max games underneath. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, that first one, that's definitely the, the wannabe hero from Metal Max 1. And mm -hmm. that's Maria's protege from Metal Max 2. And that's Drum Can Jones from Metal Max 3. Mm -hmm. And that's the the kid in the cold box from Metal Max 4, and who is the fifth person on this picture? So pretty overtly hinting at the at essentially Metal Max 5. Because <laughs> it is not the main character of Metal Max Xeno. <laughs> uh, good marketing move. That's yeah, smart. I'm like, oh, really? I did not know if anybody else has actually caught this yet, but it's just, there's no way that you could really interpret that at the very least, a tacit promise for what Metal Max 5 is. Yeah. So. That'll be fun. Yeah. Um, the only guess of anyone's head so far is that the um, there was a character from this promo shots of Wild West that sort of resembled it, but you know what? That's not going to be a thing. It's quite plausible that they'll harvest concepts from Wild West and do this new thing that they're making. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if Wild West was anything like Xeno, there won't be a lot to harvest. <laughs> a very meager one. But yeah, I could see reusing a character design or something. Mm -hmm. Just we'll see. They'll, pro they'll probably say they'll probably say something more concrete about it next year. Definitely. Even if I doubt we actually see it until at least 2024. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think that's all the that's all the news we get. You know, end of year. <laughs> Just it's nice to think. Okay, something will be happening soonish. There will be a metal. Yes, the series will continue. And hopefully has survived multiple multiple corporate relocations at this point. Um, says, uh, actually, as much has a survivor there... as a dog and a nuclear waste. Yeah. Has there been an IP that has changed hands this many times and is still current? Hmm. Hmm. I have to think about that. I mean, it is currently on its fourth owner. Yeah. Usually by that point, it's either died or found someplace stable a couple of corporate owners ago. I mean, we all figured that Katakawa was the stable one until they decided to Xeno. They were kind of kind of done. Uh, uh, we, we shall see, but like Fallout changed hands once. Yeah. Um. 
see a couple others like Atelier and, and Megaton. They didn't change hands, but their, their actual studio's ownership did. Cuneo is on its third corporate steward. Hmm. Starting at Technosoft, then uh, in the hands of Millions, and then into Arc Systems. Uh, that's honestly the, the closest I can think of, and that's still one loss. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, as for what I've been playing, uh, let's see. I got a I got a Series S for Christmas, and family got together and got that for me, which was very kind. Uh, nice. I've been just sort of uh, fucking around with Game Pass. See what I feel like playing on that. Reels is behest. I downloaded a couple of Halos. Uh, fucked around a bit with uh, Descenders. Neat uh, indie uh, procedurally generated mountain biking game. Huh. Kind of a neat okay. game. Okay. Very, very just relaxing. A description. Like it's it's like you're downhill biking. Um, uh, it has a unique control scheme that mostly uses the analog sticks, and uh, it will generate a hill. It will generate like a mountain every time that you start a run. That has like a series of routes that are generated based on like certain kinds of uh, mountain mountainous terrain, like uh, mellow curves. Uh, you know, super steep, that sort of thing. It'll give you sort of an idea of like which path you could, what you're going to get if you go on each path. And then, like, it'll, it has like a handful of objectives that it can generate based on uh, the type of course that you've generated. But it's, it's a very relaxing sort of game that uh, I'm a fan. Uh, it's recommended for people who have, uh, at the very least, on console game pass. Um, let's see what else have I entered that. Download a death loop, intend to finally play a bit of that. Uh, definitely some other things that I'm forgetting. <coughs> well, excuse me. Um, uh, other stuff. Maybe my Xbox app will be able to tell me. Experimented with streaming things to my uh, computer earlier just to see how well that would work in case I was feeling lazy and did not want to get up. <laughs> and let's see. I'm not looking for a way to work. But yeah, downloaded some. Uh, oh yeah, uh, because. Game Pass Ultimate comes with uh, the EA uh, Pass. I also fucked around with uh, some of the old Dragon Age games because I've been meaning to replay those. I was seeing how well that would uh, function because I cannot deal with the PC interface on those. It just 
the old wrong to me. So we're playing the uh, 360 version, emulated on the Xbox, which was then beamed to my PC in an abomination of technology. <laughs> but it functioned, so I can't complain. Um, I'm pretty sure that runs better than it did on 360, which not super surprising. But at the same time, may make some of the bugs I intend to take advantage of more of a problem. We'll see. <clears throat> but uh, what else was there? Oh yeah, I played a bit of that uh, Game Pass FPS from one of the Rick and Morty co-creators. It makes just a dreadful first impression. High on life. Yeah, high on life. It gets better about 90 minutes in when it shuts the fuck up for a bit. Because, <laughs> like, like, like here's, here's, here's how I'm going to contextualize this video. Is that I, I don't dislike Rick and Morty. I enjoy it well enough. Uh, Justin Roiland, the co-creator of Rick and Morty, and a voice actor on, like, half the characters in the show, is also the lead at the studio that developed this game. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is a person who definitely feels like someone who, one, has spent a lot of time doing improv, and two, definitely needs someone who can tell him to stop doing improv at times. Because <laughs> Roiland is very capable of coming up with good bits. He's very capable of coming up with jokes that will land and are like funny and unexpected. The problem is that at the start, for the first like ninety minutes of this game, it's just Roiland doing like twelve different bits one after another. Oh god! And they don't have any sort of space to breathe, and all of them go on longer than they probably should. So, like the opening is a bit where it's doing a like, a homage to, like, a sort of Duke Nukem 3D sort of first-person shooter. It's like, it looks like a 90s first-person shooter. And there's a guy, mm. there's a guy telling, feeding your objectives to you in your head uh, who's just talking about how <clears throat> you are... Uh, like, it's just taking the idea of, like, a... Uh, of that kind of shooter, except aimed directly at the divorce man. Like... The, the, the concept is that your player character is someone who is fighting the uh, boyfriend the boyfriend and divorce lawyer of their ex wife like that's the joke and there there's there's a joke there there's a good joke in that and then Roiland's like signature ticks kind of get in its way because like when I mentioned that he is clearly someone who's done a lot of improv I I'm partly referring to the fact that like one of his favorite go-to jokes is to make the bit be about how artificial the premise of the bit is in the way that, like, improv often ends up being, where it's like you're having to take a lot of weird things for granted for the joke to land. And so a lot of times, like, Royland jokes that Royland is party to end up being about, like, someone, like, drastically over-explaining the joke. And, like... That works sometimes, but it because they're just back to back to back 
and he, he goes back to that well several times during this first 90 minutes, a lot of jokes end up being like, there's the kernel of a good joke here, and then he goes to the like person who is part of the joke over-explains what the premise of the joke is in a very improv way, and it's like, okay, that, that kind of killed it, and it takes, it takes a while for the game to stop doing that. <laughs> But after you get about an hour and a half in, it stops doing that. You start getting access to the more interesting, like, movement tech, very, very light RPG elements, and it, it starts to work. It, it becomes a pretty solid, like, 7 to 8 out of 10 game. But it, it, makes a, it makes a dreadful first impression, but it does eventually become pretty fun. I've also been playing a bit of that in the background. Um... It kind of sounds like Rick and Morty, which I felt like gave me a bad first impression. It it definitely like some of it's it's that's an acquired taste, and some of it is that yeah, like if if the pacing is off on that kind of humor, it's it's a bunch of clowns ramming into each other. Like they're just it's just every every joke is stepping on every other joke, and it can kind of it can become a problem. Uh, but yeah, I do think this eventually this eventually reaches a point where it works. Uh, there's there there's some there's there's some there's some good jokes that I've I've gotten some good uh, chuckles at. In in general, uh, one of the game's favorite jokes that it will pull is to just uh, and you know some of some of these are like jokes that work. Uh, in part only because of how the player chooses to participate in them. Uh, there, there's a number of times where the game will have a character whose entire purpose is that the game is trying to dare you into shooting. Like, they are just there to be annoying and stand in the way. And the game is trying to is going to farm a slightly different joke from you based on whether you choose to just sit there and deal with them at which point, like, eventually, when they finally leave, your gun is going to tell you, oh, thank God, they're finally gone. Uh, and, you know, commiserate with you. Or you can uh, shoot them in the face, and then your gun is going to be like, you really did not have to shoot that person in the face. They were just being irritating. <laughs> uh, which, which happens a few times with a few different responses. There's one uh, early on where it's implied that the one that's being irritating is a child. And if you try to shoot them, your gun will be like, you can't shoot a kid. And I did not do this, but if you try to shoot them several times, eventually it will let you shoot them. And your gun will be like, I did not think that it was going to actually let us shoot this child in this video game. And then you go ten feet further, you find this, this person's mother, and they find out that their child is dead, and they honestly do not care and admit that it's just an irritating 30 year old <laughs> but yeah it, it does it, it does eventually you, you get some good bits eventually I, i've been enjoying it all of the all of the guns are horrible little alien creatures called the atlians and they all have their own personalities and uh one of the things that'll happen if you haven't used one in a while and then you uh uh, and then you pull it out to shoot someone with it. It'll, it'll like say something on the, you know, something on the order of, "Oh, I was afraid you'd forgotten me," or, "Well, well, well, look who's back," like that sort of thing. Where they're just like kind of pissed that you have not actually used them in a while. 
But yeah, it's it's, it's generally it, it becomes it becomes better. You just kind of have to sit through a bit. But yeah, played a bit of that. It's some... oh, and more Xenoblade, more Xenoblade. I had a thing, I had a bone yeah. to pick for Xenoblade. Yeah, I'm interested uh, in your bone. Do tell, do tell. If you didn't, if for for anyone who has not played Xenoblade One but still cares about its plot, uh, maybe skip forward like ten minutes. Uh, so uh, I'm in chapter eleven of Xenoblade One out of like seventeen. So there's there's still a fair bit of game left, but I'm in the the tail end. And I got to the point in chapter eleven where you finally fight the guy that theoretically started this journey up. Uh, Mechon that uh, is known for most of the game is just Metal Face. Uh, that name probably could have used a bit more time in the workshop. Uh, apparently, in the Japanese version, he was called Blackface. I understand why they changed Ooh. that. Uh, oh dear. Yeah, there's a, there was a good reason to change that. Uh, Metal Face probably probably would have gone a, a bit more looking into alternatives to that. Whatever. Uh, but you you. You chase after Metal Face for a very long time, and then about halfway through the game, it feels like you run. You finally he uh, this this Mechon is revealed to have it, like it's not just robot within it is a a mechanized pilot like a cyborg pilot who used to be a person or used to be a human or a hom. They call them homs. I'm just gonna call them humans. They're just humans. Uh, who used to be a human named Mumkar. Uh, Mumkar, if you if you were paying attention to his voice, you probably figured that out pretty quickly. He just sort of sounds like Mumkar. Yeah. Appears at the very beginning of the game, and then is seemingly killed by Mechons. Uh, but yeah, so you so you run into you find out that it's Mumkar, uh, and then. But, you know, you, you still want to kill him because the whole thought process is, oh, he killed uh, a protagonist's childhood friend. Uh, around the same time, you find out that said childhood friend was also turned into a mecha. Uh, but, you know, lost memory, that sort of shit. Uh, it, but, you know, she's still alive. Hooray. Mostly. Mostly alive. We'll go with mostly alive. There, there, is, there is a Fiora running around. Uh, but yeah, your characters are still mostly driven by vengeance because Fiora is not the only one that was killed. Uh, a bunch of people from your hometown were killed, so you are, you know, your Mamakar may not have managed to successfully kill Fiora, but he's not on the hook. Um, you fight him uh, a few times, and then like you finally reach this place. Uh, uh, Sword Valley. It's called Sword Valley because it's on the sword that the game takes. Like for those who not played or paid any attention to Xenoblade, first one takes place entirely on two dead warring gods uh, that, like, they seemingly killed each other, and so everything is like, like you're on the Bionis, which is the more like biological uh, one of them. And so everything is sort of named for a part of the Bionis, like the Bionis' shoulder or its elbow or its hand, whatever. Uh, the Sword Valley is the Bionis' sword. Um, 
either that or it's one of the wounds inflicted by the sword. I can't remember. Whatever. Point is, uh, yeah. So you're in Sword Valley, which is where he, uh, where Montcard originally died. So it's poetic. This is where he's gonna, where you fight him again. So you fight him. You fight him. You fight him. He reveals that he has produced a poison capable of just liquefying humans. Nice. You know, so just so we're clear that he's a huge piece of shit. Uh, still a huge piece of shit. Has only become more of a huge piece of shit. Uh, so you know, a lot to a lot to deal with. But let me let me pull up what exactly. Okay. But you you fight him, and I, I should contextualize that uh, Shulk's entire mission to this point has been. Kill all Mecca. Not not usually expressed in such a genocide genocidal fashion, but that's basically his thought process. Uh, so you like you and your best friend and the brother of the of the girl who was seemingly killed are all to have all banded together on the basis of we're going to. <laughs> We're going to go avenge uh, this this girl's this girl and the rest of the colony nine's deaths, and then right as you're about to land a killing blow on Mumkar, like when the game ha when you have him at like ten percent of administered, uh, the game goes into cutscene mode. Uh, Dunban, the the girl's brother, like Mumkar's former friend, like a person who has a lot of personal stake in this, goes in to make a killing blow and Shulk. Uh, intervenes to stop them. Uh, and his reasoning for why he is stopping this makes no sense for the scene within the scene. Like, the scene says things that don't fit together and don't really make sense for where Shulk has been or seemingly where they want his... They, they kind of make sense for where they want his character to go. But the things he says in this scene don't actually push him in that direction. Theoretically, the, the obvious thing is it's bad for the protagonist to want to commit a genocide. Like, that's a bad thing. We don't mm -hmm. want him to continue to want to commit a genocide. Yeah, generally not, no. Yeah, so we, we need him to think of mechons as things that maybe deserve to not be killed indiscriminately. Maybe that's maybe that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic gist of the conversation that Shulk and Dunban had uh, Shulk basically says, we can't kill him because he's a human. Or at least used to be. So that doesn't ex exactly accomplish the goal of making him not seem like a genocidal maniac. Uh, because it honestly reinforces the idea. Uh, Dunban points out that sometimes you have to, because, like, he's abs- he is abs- Mumkar is, at this point, absolutely a genocidal maniac. He has made it clear that his only intention at this point is to kill humans. Uh, and then Shulk says something to the effect of, but I need to understand why humans and mechons fight. Like that, like that is something that not killing Mumkar will somehow answer. And that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If we, if we interrogate it from the perspective of Shulk is trying to understand from Mumkar why humans and mechons fight, it should be noted that one, there's 
no real reason to assume that even if you could get Mumkar to give a good faith answer, which is not really possible, there's no reason to think that Mumkar knows the answer to that. Uh, I, I haven't said much about him because there isn't much to say, but Mumkar has essentially no characterization other than asshole. He is in the opening cutscene of the game as one of Dunban's like allies at the start of the game. And the first thing out of the first things out of his mouth are basically that he wants to run during this climactic battle that happened a year ago. He wants to run and he wants to wait until Dunban dies and then steal his sword. Like that was his thing before he was turned into a robot maniac. And then uh, he gets killed by Mechon, gets turned into a robot, and then makes it his goal to just murder as many humans as possible. The way I described it to another friend who I was describing this to is that he is portrayed with the same level of sympathy as like a goblin who swallowed a carton of cigarettes. There's just absolutely no redeeming qualities to this character. If you dig really hard in... Uh, the opening town, most people, like, you can find people who will talk about him, and basically all of them say they never liked him. There is no reason to assume that any character involved has any sentiment for this man at this point, except Dunban, the one who is arguing we need to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, like, so So that led me to, like, why? what is function is this scene meant to serve? Uh, what character growth is this meant to present for Shulk? Shulk's mission, until this point, was to find and kill the Mechon that killed Fjord. And this doesn't re represent growth, though, because the reason he's arguing against killing Mumkar isn't out of an argument that Mechons are living creatures whose lives are of value. It's that the ones that were made out of humans are people, and their lives are therefore not expendable. So it doesn't actually soften Shulk's motivation, so much as entrenches his motivations further into being like a weird allegorical racist. <laughs> it's it, like, like, as I was describing this, it's possible they'll do something. I'm not super confident, but it is possible. Uh, but the way that it reads as the scene is happening is baffling. Uh, I don't understand what the scene's meant to communicate other than to soften the part of the audience would argue that a quest that started out with the intention of killing someone who was a known sentient being was now immoral because that person was at one point made out of meat. <laughs> and like maybe like I, there's just there's just a lot of questions about how this scene ended up the way that it was. Uh, my and... best guess is they are trying to get the player to start thinking about. Well, what? Why is I was doing why that is a this long war time going ago. on? Yeah, Th that's my best guess, but I don't. Yeah, it. The the problem is that the, this sounds the like clumsy took, writing, to be honest. Yeah, the the avenue they took to it doesn't make any sense. No, and you already have Fiora, who is a brainwashed Mechon. Uh, like the degree of brainwashed, unclear, but you know, like she's she's been it. Fiora the Mechon is not a mystery at this point in the plot. So the concept of, like, the faced Mechon are pe could be people you know, could be sympathetic people. Uh, like, all of that is is already on the table. 
The motivations driving the Mechon are as yet unclear, uh, in part because Mumkar is kind of a noose, not even a noose, a millstone to making them sympathetic because he is like just as a representative of any side, he makes that side look worse. So he needs to be out of the way and he does just die. Like that's the other thing that's ridiculous here is that at the end of the scene, uh, like, like it really does seem like it's mostly to absolve them of killing a human mm. because at the end of the scene, uh, he, uh, like Shulk gets, uh, so Shulk successfully stops Dunban from killing him. Not, not necessarily convinces Dunban not to kill him, but he stops the killing blow and, uh, you know, uh, Mumkar has time to regroup. Uh, Shulk gets one of his future visions that shows that Mankar is about to be killed by uh, falling debris. He tells he tries to tell Mankar Mankar not to not to attack them, get out of the way. Uh, Mankar does it anyway, uh, causes the debris that will come to that will soon kill him to fall and uh, impale him, and then the place that he's been impaled on uh, breaks and falls off the uh, the Bionis. So. Just, just everything's broken. Uh, every, everything's broken. Uh, I'm given to understand, based on parts of the game that I've been spoiled on in the past, that he does not come back. He's gone. So it, it really does just end up feeling like somewhere someone writing the script thought it was too off-putting to have you just kill a person. And that... I don't know. That doesn't really wash with me. That that like if that's the case, it feels like they didn't sufficiently consider their own moral that you shouldn't be enthused to kill mechons to begin with. <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird scene. It's kind of a bad scene. Uh, it's not great. Yeah, it, it doesn't sink the story, but it is one of those things where it's like you really you really fumbled this. This particular aspect of story does not make any sense. Um, but yeah. Otherwise, uh, continued trekking on with that. Uh, I I'm trying to get the side quests in Sword Valley done before I leave it because I'm going to understand that they're all timed. So get those done. Also, they're all worth a shit ton of EXP. So, uh, you know that'll save me some grinding in the future. But uh, so so. I'm making steady progress in Xenoblade 1. Uh, let's see. Do I have anything else I was going to say about the... Oh, yeah, I, I have I have determined one other thing that, I, that bothers me about the combat system, uh, which is just a consequence of how the future sight mechanic works, where basically what will happen sometimes is that if an enemy is about to use a super powerful attack that would potentially kill a party member... Uh, the game will give Shulk like a vision of the attack that's about to happen and wreck your ship. Uh, and you will have, you know, like five, ten seconds to use the Monado sometime, in some fashion to uh, make it so that you won't take damage from the attack, you'll dodge the attack, you'll prevent the attack from happening in some way to prevent that character from being killed. Uh, the issue is that if you are fighting a strong enemy... Uh, a lot of times they will get uh, several of these attacks in a row and 
the future site cutscenes, as far as I can tell, are unscapable. So what can happen is you survive one attack, uh, and then the game immediately launches. Uh, like, you'll get a future site. You'll immediately do something to prevent that attack from killing you. Uh, and then the game will immediately launch into another future site to show you what you what the next attack you need to worry about is. And that means that, like, for, you know, 10 seconds of gameplay, you've now sat through 20 seconds of things that will happen if you don't do something. And that gets very tedious. Uh, I wish that there was a button that uh, basically just said, yes, I am aware that there is a thing that is about to wreck my shit. Uh, <laughs> I, I do not feel like sitting through the attack animation that will uh, the the future that the future holds if I continue on this dark path. So uh, that, that's that's basically my biggest issue at this stage. I think I last week complained a bit about the uh, about the combat, but I think the combat's pretty uh, just hovering above the Mendoza line. That's fair. Uh, that's a baseball reference for, for you. I enjoy that baseball reference. <laughs> I understood that reference. Yeah. Uh, the, the combat hovers just above the window of the line. I mean, given to understand, it gets significantly more complex in later games. Yes. Uh, it's it's which, largely completely different beyond the first game. Yeah, it's using the same ingredients to make something more different from what I can understand. Uh, in, in Xenoblade 1, you kind of... The, the entire loop kind of revolves around toppled, uh, stun toppled days. Uh, like the, those three things are, the, there are other th things that you can direct with, but those are the three statuses that matter and the three, like your, your party is supposed to, for the most part, synergistically create circumstances where you put enemies in dazes so that they can't do anything. And there's, there's really not enough to that, uh, a lot of bigger enemies will just sort of be immune to uh, toppling or dazing, which mostly means that you just end up being very reactive to when they just explode you for some reason. So it's a uh, it's of limited utility. But otherwise, uh, I've been having a good time. The game's still very very pretty. Uh, it's it's oh god, pretty pretty solid writing outside of that one scene. that's very bad. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, it's kept my attention, so, so no complaints, no fouls. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's what I've been playing, uh, now that, the, now that we've run the marathon of everything that I've been playing. <laughs> Sorry for making everyone listen to that. Um, let's see. Uh, you got anything... Yeah, that's not the right Discord server. Let me check. There's nothing in the podcast section. Uh, yeah. Uh, do we want to have? Do we have any end of year questions we wanted to go through? <laughs> um, uh, end of year questions. What is the RPG of the year? Uh, I don't know which RPGs have been this year. Pokemans, Pokemon other Pokemans. Real... Pokemon. One mm -hmm. of the Pokemon games has a real good claim on it. Uh, nice. 
I'm just, uh, uh, triangle strategy. That's a good one. That's a big one. Uh, then a blade three. Uh, haven't played enough of it to judge, but I really liked what I've played of Star Ocean: The Divine Fortress. Uh, it's been it's been relatively a quiet year. Uh, let's see, Sparks of Hope. Uh, Soul Hackers 2 this year? That's wild. Yeah. Uh, we've had a lot of like games that I thought were really good, but not not a ton that I that screams at me like this is the best of this year. Uh, the the one that like recency bias is affecting this, but Pokemon Scarlet is definitely up there for me. Yeah. Uh, Elden Ring is going to run away with it, just for the record. Uh, and I've got nothing against that, even though like I haven't really gotten into it myself. Like I've played like ten hours and thought this, this was pretty good, but it was not something that was really blowing my mind, so I haven't gone back yet. But you know, like realistically, at basically every awards and quite possibly our own, that's gonna run away with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, my my personal torch would probably be for. Both Scarlet at the stage. Same. That or Triangle Strategy. Yeah, I haven't played Xenoblade 3. Haven't played Triangle Strategy. Yes, I really, really like Xenoblade 3. I just, it has some difficulty balancing issues that might... I hear that it just completely rolls over because of the way side quests are set up. Uh, it's not even really that. Like, for example, the boss I was just stuck at Mm -hmm. I'm like three or four levels over the level that shows up above the boss's head and it feels completely impossible. That's wild because like I, I assume that the difficult that the level scaling was paired back at some stage after Xenoblade One because it's wildly aggressive in Xenoblade One. Yeah. It's some of the most aggressive level scaling that I've ever seen in my life. Uh I looked up the exact formula because I was I was baffled by it. Like once you're once you're more than like four levels, I, I think it's once you're at like five levels above an enemy, you get put in a situation where like off the top, unrelated to the fact that your stats are already going to be higher than expected, the game just has like wild uh, calculations that it does on top of uh, on top of the uh, actual. Uh, stat differential. Uh, if you are uh, five levels uh, above a uh, above an enemy, then the formula is that the enemy gets a base uh, uh, like whoever whoever is higher level in that situation will get a base uh, forty percent knock to their hit rate, uh, evasion rate. Uh, 32% uh, knock to their uh, magic hit rate, and a 25% knock to their block rate. So, like, basically all of your defensive uh, capacities are tremendously hobbled. <laughs> if you have the temerity to be six levels higher, uh, the game uh, considers the fight to be a waste of your time. Uh, <laughs> 
And so that number jumps from a 40% knock to hit rate to 120%. Wait. 120% knock to hit rate, evade rate, 66% knock to uh, magic hit rate, and 30% knock to block rate. Like, a truly, like, you basically, uh, if you're higher level, if you're six levels higher than an enemy, it basically is never going to hit you. Like, maybe one in ten of its attacks will ever hit. It's it's super weird. It's one of the weirdest, like, it's one of the most blunt force level scalings I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and like the gamekeeper doesn't want you fighting enemies that are this much higher level than you uh, because it does give you a bonus to exp but it's not even in the same ballpark uh, uh, if you fight an enemy that is way higher level that's six levels higher than you in that like red marker territory uh, you do get an exp bonus but it is not even in the same ballpark as the amount of effort you'll be putting in, because uh, the EXP bonus is only fifty percent. Might as well have just fought two things that were your same level, uh, and you know, gotten and did that in like a third of the time it would take you to kill one level, one enemy that was like six levels above you. Ridiculous. I don't know. I don't know why they did this. It's weird. The entire thing is weird and kind of encourages you to just uh, sort of not care about like. Your, your equipment is only really a factor when you are, broadly speaking, close in level to the enemy. Uh, once, once you start leveling higher than something in Xenoblade 1, you might as well not worry about what you're equipped with. It won't matter. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I don't know how level penalty works in Xenoblade 3. I'm now actually curious. Yeah, I, I assume uh, I assume that there was some issues that you've run into. Yeah, just uh, occasionally I hit a boss that just feels ridiculously overpowered, so I just bumped the difficulty down for that boss fight. And this one, I had to put it down to easy because it just felt impossible even on normal. It's just like a, a you know, I a need better like feedback as to what level I need to be to f actually fight this thing. It just, it's just yeah. it's kind of annoying. I, I assume that this is smoothed out by three, but in, in one uh, there's a lot of stats and how they work and it doesn't feel super well communicated. Like one of the, it's the difference that you get between uh, the game giving you all the information and the game actually telling you what information is pertinent. Uh, it's definitely an issue that Xenoblade 1 had, because especially the Definitive Edition, which I am given to understand gives more information, but uh, especially in Xenoblade 1, uh, you, are, you are inundated with all of the numbers that you need to understand like what a piece of equipment is going to do for you or whatever, but not a lot of explanation as to uh, like what is going what what is going to be super relevant uh for you and that that seems like kind of its biggest issue you you run into the same thing with like the side quests. there's dozens and dozens of side quests in a lot of places and some of them are neat 
and some of them are collect monster giblets. <laughs> and uh, the game doesn't have a way to communicate which ones are neat and which ones are collect monster giblets. Yeah, that's that's a lot better in two and three. Yeah, I, I'm given they to understand dramatically that dramatically improved this. Yeah, one of the things they fixed almost immediately. Uh, but yeah, the the only other thing I can say about Xenoblade at this stage is that I've been fascinated by uh, the 25 year hold that some sort of story uh, that uh, Tetsuya Takahashi seems to want to uh, make work. Uh, <laughs> Because there's a lot of just Xenogears themes happening in Xenoblade. Yeah. I'm expecting that that only gets more common as you get further into the series. Uh, and pretty sure you could still probably slot this into Xenogears timeline if you tried. Probably. Uh, but don't worry, not not uh, not explicitly enough. It's legally actionable. I was looking up uh, interviews, trying to find... Because I, I was remembering Xenostaga Episode 1 pre-release hype, where they were talking about how... Like, I recalled them saying, but I was trying to find, like, definitive statements, but, like, they wanted that game to someday be able to connect to Xenogears, but that officially at the time it was a new IP because they did not have the rights to Xenogears. Um, but... Uh, like... With what I ended up finding was the co-founder of Monolith Soft, who is not Tetsuya Takahashi, uh, saying that they had co-founded that they had that their reason that they had wanted to make Monolith Soft was that they wanted to make a Xenogears two happen someday, and they said this in 2020, <laughs> which was truly a wild thing to just bring up. <laughs> just very funny. Like there, the an entire studio haunted by the shadow of a game from twenty five years ago. Like wild <laughs> shit, truly wild shit. Um, at this stage, given that Xenoblade is now a reliable money maker, I feel like Nintendo should just buy the just should just see if they can negotiate the Xenoblade rights just to exercise Portetsu's <laughs> soul. <laughs> Because, good gracious, that that game still has a hold on him. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that there is a key artifact in Xenogears, Xenoblade, and Xenosaga. Definitely in Xenoblade and Xenosaga, where I believe, like, this was just something that was randomly spoiled for me because I was looking up shit about Xenogears. But that, like... Xenosaga and Xenoblade 2 both have an artifact that is basically the same artifact that was discovered in in Africa in the 21st century and is a key <laughs> aspect of the plot. And it's like, huh, well, okay then. That, uh, I don't, I don't know that there's a way that you can not uh, accept those as being in continuity with each other, even if you ignore the fact that you could get you could accept that, like, oh, you can get Cosmos in Xenoblade 2. Oh, that's just a cameo. It's one of the blades. There's a lot of those. But no, once you, once you add that, it's like, no, they're probably in continuity with each other. Don't think about it. <laughs> so seriously, don't think too much about it, because then you'll have to try and figure it out, and your brain will turn to spaghetti. Yeah. True. Uh, but yeah, suffice to say, 
Tetsuya Takahashi wants to write a book about Gnosticism and Kabbalah, and it has not yet let uh, let go of him. <laughs> Let's talk about the Demiurge. Zamza, you sure sounded Faustian for someone who was giving me a, an offer. You seem kind of Demiurgish, if I'm being real with you. <laughs> I don't understand that reference. <laughs> Do you know what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism. Not really. Gnosticism was a sect of... Uh, Christianity in the first century AD. Uh, wasn't exactly a sect. It was kind of like all of them. Yeah, but like distinct from the ones that emerged as like dominant over the preceding thousand years. There's there's a lot of Gnostic sects, it's true. But like, uh, as we, as Xenogears understand, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, it's adding was... mystery cult to early Christianity with some really bizarre. Um, Changes to the base mythology. Yeah, uh, to, put, uh, to, put it, to put it simply, Gnosticism, uh, Gnostic, many Gnostic sects kind of tried to uh, tried to square away perceived differences between the God of the Old Testament and the messages brought by uh, Jesus that uh, form what is now known as the New Testament, uh, and came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament was a literal evil god uh, that colloquially gets referred to as the Demiurge uh, that existed essentially to uh, trap people uh, within huh. uh, on Earth uh, in uh, varyingly depending on the sect on Earth in, in like human life basically uh, well that's wild <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah some, some of this developed towards Arianism some, and which got struck down as a heresy in like fifth century and other ones got into a different direction and then um at least one branch of this held out for centuries in different parts of europe until one of the crusades actually took it out of of southern france mm -hmm. it's the crusade that we conveniently forget about because it was not actually aimed at muslim people <laughs> yep it turns out that we that uh that as with most things, uh, there's plenty of things you can fight at home if you try hard enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so Gnosticism is kind of baked heavily into all of the Zeno games, but especially that the, those concepts of, like, the Demiurge and, like, the trapping of uh, people within cycles of life. Uh, this is a heavy, oh, heavy influence of nineties anime. Yeah, uh, the what's that? It's a very heavy influence on a lot of nineties anime. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was it very in vogue all over the place. I mean, Evangelion is ninety percent this in the backstory. Yeah, if you read the backstory of Evangelion, it's uh, a combination of Gnosticism and the stupidest shit you've ever heard. Um, I mean, granted, I mean, a lot of Gnosticism really is the stupidest shit you've ever heard. Yeah, no, it's, it's wild shit. It's real wild shit, but, uh, but yeah. Did you, uh, ever, did you ever read any of the, um, the Gospels that got turned down for consideration? I've never actually sat down and read the Gnostic Gospels properly. I, I've read through the praises of a few of them, and, like, mm -hmm. it's one that, uh, one of my old classmates like to refer to as the Gospel of Jesus Christ Psychopath. 
Oh yeah, I think I know what's for the sheer yeah. body count. <laughs> yeah, you get some some very different takes on Jesus in some of these as well. Like one but where if oh, your yes, argument Jesus is that Jesus exists, you can bring him back to life. Yeah, yeah. Lot to lot to unpack. <laughs> Much to consider. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, the, the the Gnostic Gospels are. Uh, some some real wild hairs in there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so so, may, so maybe keep on the lookout next time you're trying to interpret Xenoblade wheels. <laughs> okay. Well, that puts a lot of Xenoblade three into a, a whole new light. <laughs> uh, glad to have been of help. <laughs> but yeah. Always, uh, always a good reminder that uh, the uh, the Bible, as it is currently understood, is very much a compiled book of uh, that came together after uh, centuries of uh, internal debate and burning things due to heresies. <laughs> Wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I remember learning this cute little French folk um, folk song in class years and years ago. That turns out to have been at least partly an account of St. Dominic's crusade against the Albigensian heresy. <laughs> Adorable. Yep. Also the, also the origin of the term ivory tower, oddly enough. Huh. Interesting. Yep. Never would have guessed. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um... But yeah, uh, Deus in Xenogears is very is very much a demiurge analog, in as much as it is also just Lavos, uh, which retroactively kind of makes Lavos a demiurge analog as well. Uh. Granted, any given Dark Lord in the JRPG genre is effectively a demiurge. Yeah, if, if it's just more explicit enough. when you get to some, it's more explicit for some. You've just yeah. made all JRPGs really weird for me now. Thank you. Yeah, but I mean, the, the closer the closer it appears to Morgoth or his face from Wheel of Time, the more likely it's going to be a demiurge. Yeah, but, yeah uh, you'll get used to it. Uh, we also, it's it's just something that like I'll, I'll be real with you. I've been accepting this as cosmic background radiation of uh, JRPGs for. <laughs> 20-some-odd years, so you'll get used to it. Uh, cosmic background radiation. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. That what? was a real weird thing to learn about. That is an what, cosmic thing. background radiation? Yeah. We also, we also just learning everything tonight. <laughs> no, I didn't learn about that tonight. Yeah, I'm just saying, that. yeah, that's, that's, it's a weird thing to learn about. Yeah, it's a weird thing to learn about, and then you eventually put it out of your mind because it's everywhere. Yes. <laughs> Same thing. Well, that and just, uh, I just remember watching, I used to watch this a lot when my first son didn't sleep, uh, it was Cosmos <laughs> and learned just yeah. thinking about the speed of light and how old a lot of the light you see stars in the sky is. And that's mm. fucking weird. Well, that's a whole different kind of conversation. <laughs> the sun is a I think I think the name of the episode was Graveyard in the Sky or something like that. 
Yeah, and you're you're just seeing you're seeing some a star that died millions of years. Ago. Yeah. The sun is a Billions of years ago. The furnace where hydrogen stand in the helium temperature of millions of degrees. Here comes science. Uh, science. The uh, I think a lot about the fucking. Uh, I, th I think a lot about the fucking They Might Be Giants children's albums. <laughs> they got some good children's albums. Yeah, no, they're very good. You train them up on that, and then when they're old enough, they get to listen to things like Bastard Wants to Hit Me. Good stuff. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah. Uh, so now that Wheels has been educated about Gnosticism, um... <laughs> can I be uneducated about Gnosticism? <laughs> nope. Just remember, just remember your, your word, Al. Everything you know is wrong. Sweet, true. And but, that yeah. is like, like, if I wanted to start a new Gnostic church, I would probably base it on that. <laughs> you could, you could get some of the yarns. That would work. Yeah. Oh, dare to be stupid and all that, yes. But yeah. Uh... We have questions? More questions? Questions? Do we? <laughs> uh, oh. But yeah, I don't think we came to a conclusion of what RPG of the Year was, but... Uh, it's um, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Pocket Unanimous Monster. decision. Pocket Monster Scarlet and Violet. Who unanimously decided this? Oh. The, the um, of one of you guys who vote. actually played these games? Yes. Yeah, the two of us who put in a vote. Uh, the RPG of the year is Persona 5 again. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations once again. Several, yeah. several of you are running. Mm hmm. I mean, that one RPG of the year before it even had all the um, royal shit, so there you go. Only became RPG. It's RPG. definitely deserving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's hit some questions from the big list. Question 95. I forgot to put this in the chat so the Kaijin can download it. I'll do that after this. Uh, what is the core problem with Kemco's RPGs? How can they make technically sound games that are not interesting at all? You wonder, always wonder how well would their games be received had they been released in 16 bit era. They would have been received more kindly, but they probably would have been received about as kindly as like any given game you don't actually care that much about. You just remember playing. Uh, they're uh, more boring than Breath of Fire. Uh, <laughs> I, had to. Uh, I will note that I've played a lot of RPGs from the Super Nintendo period. And a lot of them that never came out in America. And Co is about the general level of quality you would expect from a mid-tier Super Nintendo RPG. Yeah, the, the ones that no one was going to bother with because they weren't guaranteed sellers yet. And uh, I mean, What a lot of people keep forgetting from that period is that any American experience with the JRPG market was already massively subject to survivor's bias. Yeah. The, the PS1 era, we got a much broader selection, although there was also just a much broader selection of RPGs to actually play. But, 
Super Nintendo. Even then, PS1, PS2 period, there was just a huge amount of stuff that never made it to America for good reasons. Hmm. And sometimes bad reasons. Sometimes what the hell reasons. For for everyone that it may that it, like makes you scratch your head as to why no one bought it, whether there's five where it's like, oh, of course no one bought. It. <laughs> yeah. A couple more like, why didn't they bother with this? Oh yeah, because they nuked Tokyo in the first three hours. Yeah. Mega Ten. <laughs> yeah, plus all the religious bits in Mega Ten definitely made that one harder. So. Yeah, but oh yeah, okay, never mind. There was somebody crucified before the nuke happened. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Shin Megami Tensei, there was no way that that was ever going to come over to America in its original time period. Yeah, just just not possible. And now we're in a world where only Shin Megami Tensei 2 doesn't have an official English translation, mm-hmm. even though the official English translation of 1 is no longer available. Thanks to mm-hmm. Apple. Uh, Apple sucks. But yeah. Um, I, guess, I guess my answer to this would be that... Uh, this is this is a feeling that I've I've long held about uh, media, just that like m- much more damning than incompetence to me is not being entertaining, and something being incompetently made will often cause it to become not entertaining. But something being competently made is not the same thing as something being entertaining, and the issue that Kemco RPGs have is that they are like. Kemco's current output is this is that it's made to like the the you will have a game out in X number of months with uh you know without any hitches or delays it's just there will be a game and so to to make sure that happens you produce very uh staid games they they are games that don't feel like they have it, it doesn't feel like they were made out of a spark that there existed within anywhere within the team. Yep. I'm sure. I'm sure plenty of people were put in good work, did their best, but it doesn't feel like anyone was desperate to make these. They didn't have like an idea that they felt needed to be communicated. And like it's, art that it's says nothing, it's more like an assembly art. line RPG. Yeah, and like art that says nothing is boring. <laughs> it doesn't even have to say something complex, but it does need to say something. This is why I often find the games that end up getting a two and a half on my on my um, reviews are often more interesting than the ones I gave a three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, giving a game a three it means that it's competently made; it does what it's supposed to do. A two point five usually means it tried something really weird and it flubbed it, but you know what? This was cool. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I would say that like that's that's kind of the thing. Like I, I've definitely played some like. Six out of tens that I found far more memorable than nine out of tens because the nine out of tens, like, yep, very well put together. Definitely, you know, a good junk food game that I was able to enjoy while I played it and then did not ever think about again. It it needs to, you know, like more, much more than like technical acumen. The ability to evoke emotion for anything that is being treated as art is its most important and valuable asset. And the best way to evoke emotion is to be saying something or to, you know, offer an experience that is different from other things. And 
Chemco RPGs are very deliberately not offering an experience that's different from other games, and very rarely are they saying something, so you end up producing something that, like, nothing wrong with it. If someone said, oh, I really had a good time with that one, I'd just assume that they had met it at the right time in their life where they needed that kind of game. But, you know, it's not going to speak to a lot of people because it isn't saying much. That would, that would be sort of my philosophy as to why these just don't work, why they they, they just don't speak to people that much. And to, to be fair, they're working within the capacity to make work. They, no one seems to have illusions about what they are. But it is one of those things where it's like, you're never going to see like a breakout Kempo RPG just in the same mold. Like they would have to do, they would have to go out on a limb. <laughs> what it's worth, I, I did play one or two of their old cell phone games that were inventive in a storytelling fashion and creative in the fact that they managed to do something with a with an actual cell phone that was hmm. not bad. Um, Good actually, it was... Uh, imagine taking one of the old flip phones and creating basically a Star Ocean 1 battle system for it. Huh, fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. It actually worked. Um, the graphics were massively recycled throughout quite obviously so um there was like maybe half a dozen actual characters in the game and it had some really interesting post-apocalyptic themes fair enough i suppose that's how you get away with recycling assets real hard <laughs> yep it was it was actually not bad um yeah. all things considered let's see what did i give this thing you can go out on a limb sometimes To through the old archive site again because there's no way that this has been on yeah. the main site. Let's see. Slide down here. And, um. What was the. Typing English Innocent Saga. That's One of my two and a halfers. Yep. <laughs> yep. There you go. Take out those yep. In the plot of Innocent Saga tries hard, but it becomes a victim of the game's length. There are only a handful of towns and levels, and only five real characters outside the party roster. It's not a lot to work with. Yeah. Let's see here. The gentleman goes to war with the army's scout. Yep. Good setting, character writing is solid, good amount of DLC, which, I mean, I got the game for free to begin with, so I actually picked out the 200 yen for, total for DLC. <laughs> Too much graphics recycling and could have been expanded to be a lot more than it was. Yeah, granted, this was by Worldwide Software and published by Kenco, I believe. Hmm. Oh. Not one of their internal bits. No. But I think several of the ones that I worked with were, or that I liked from them, were published hmm. by Kenco, but not produced. Or not developed. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Hit another couple of these questions. Uh, man, this one's gonna be mean. It's the best thing about Shenmue 3 that it makes people appreciate Yakuza more. I think the better thing about it is that it makes people realize that Shenmue and Yakuza are not that similar. 
Mm -hmm. uh, There's a good thing about Shenmue 3. I feel bad about how Shenmue 3 went because it was one of those, like, I, I think I've ranted about this before, but Shenmue 3 is what happens when the audience and creator both say they want the same thing, but don't realize they, in fact, want very different things. Because I would wager about 70% of the audience who said they wanted Shenmue 3 actually wanted the conclusion to Shenmue. <laughs> and Yu Suzuki interpreted that as, oh, you want more Shenmue. And so he made the game that would be, that he probably would have produced in like 2003 if he had the money. Uh, it's just another chapter of Shenmue. The story is not really moved that very, not really moved forward that much. Like Ryo runs into the villain of Shenmue one and two, uh, catches up to him, gets his ass beat. The end. Uh, there is there is no real further advancement from where he was in Shenmue two, but you know he's in a different part of China now. Yay. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, a lot of people probably just sort of wanted to know how the story is. And, like, because of that disconnect, Shenmue 3 being a game that plays like it came out decades prior to when it did, uh, it, it just sort of plays like a direct continuation of Shenmue 2 in most ways, except for adding the most obnoxious thing they could have added from uh, modern games, a stamina meter. Uh, <laughs> They, they they really they really misread what the audience wanted, but I, I think that the the most useful thing that Shenmue Three did, as far as Yakuza is concerned, is just sort of make it clear that the two are not actually that similar. Uh, they they are both games that have a degree of verisimilitude uh, in portraying East Asian cities, and that's kind of it. <laughs> Uh, so if you just take off the glasses and kind of squint, you can see how they they sort of look alike in the outline. Yeah. And, like, you, you definitely see, like, like, I want to say that not, uh, why am I, like, I almost said the wrong person. Let's just, uh, Nagoshi. Toshihiro Nagoshi, I believe, worked on Shenmue, but the actual game that was produced in this case is is nothing so it is most broadly similar to like nation open world games uh uh fucking like a modern successor to river city ransom and uh spike out battle street but you know those are those are less uh, less well known than Shenmue, so they don't they don't get called out so much. Uh, here's apparently yeah, apparently he was a producer who kind of, like, got Shenmue out the door. Uh, he had previously been on the project, didn't much care for how it was turning out, and uh, left to, like, he got his own division 
which was amusement, what essentially amusement vision was at the time. Uh, and then, uh, the, uh, and then he was called back to make sure that the game went out the door, uh, on time when Shenmue was like nearing completion. But yeah, so, so realistically, uh, it seems more like, uh, he, like, some of the same basic elements of Shenmue were, uh, considered, but, like, not in a way that makes them similar, just in the way that they are both, uh, taking ingredients and producing the entire, an entirely different dish from them. Okay, uh, the mean question hit parade continues. Uh, it's the best thing about Crash Bandicoot 4 that it makes people realize they never really liked Crash. Uh, I think people generally... Shots fired. Like, shots, shots definitely fired. Uh, my, my response would be that I feel like people who like Crash Bandicoot generally liked Crash Bandicoot 4. Yeah, Crash Bandicoot 4 got really good critical response too yeah it generally reignited the like the for a long time the consensus was that no one actually liked crash bandicoot and then like for the the trilogy like people were like oh this is a fun nostalgic rip and then four came out like oh this is these these were actually good and worth uh remembering yeah uh crash 4 is really good except if you try to actually get all the gems don't do that yeah don't do that that's yeah but you don't have like to. They, it's not required. Yeah. It's not required. They shouldn't have gated anything. They should not have gated an ending behind getting all, everything. That was a bad idea. Um, but yeah. Just one of those things where it's like... Uh, I, I do think that like the, the premise is ill-formed for the question. But like if we if we go back to it, like I, I think the answer is just that like, uh, like Crash 4 did well. I forget how much it actually sold. Uh... Or did they ever comment on how much was actually sold? Uh, sales. Uh, sold 400,000 units digitally in its first month. Which uh, was a bit down from uh, the trilogy and the racing remake, but not far down. Uh, have like an actual... Yeah, it seems to have done better when it came to the Switch and... Uh, next gen, although I would imagine mostly that was let's be real, the Switch version. Yeah, that's where the audience for platformers generally lives. Uh, but yeah, like like in general, uh, in, in general, it was you know one of those things where I, th I think the Roderick thing is just that platformers are no longer the dominant like mode of video game. Back when Crash Bandicoot was new. If you didn't know what kind of game you were making, you were probably making a platformer. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, that was just the dominant mode of video game, and so Crash Bandicoot was like 
kind of top of that heap. Now that platformers are not niche, but they are definitely, you know, no longer, you know, they're definitely something that is uh, less the uh, in thing. In general, you've got uh, people kind of, uh, uh, like, the, the natural response is a little less, it's a little more muted, although uh, sustained sales on them seem to be a little better than uh, action games, which kind of just blow out the first week and then kind of stop. Yeah. Uh, uh, unless you have Mario on the cover, um, or there's <laughs> some nostalgia involved, it definitely seems very hard to sell newer platformers. Yeah, and part of that is just an unwillingness to market to the demographics that would be easiest to sell them to. Uh, Sony and Microsoft are both aggressively, essentially scared of marketing to children. <laughs> they don't. They don't like to do it. They do not do it very much. Uh, they don't know very well how to do it, and they get kind of uh, antsy that the console, that the big expensive console, will ever be considered a child's toy. So uh, it limits how much, uh, you know, the audience that would be uh, most uh, into a colorful platformer that uh, would be the easiest to sell that to is going to actually see it. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think the general response to, like, the biggest issue people had with Crash Bandicoot 4 is that, like, it was just too much as far as like the the side content but like general like individual levels and shit people people like that quite a bit um, what has made the original crash bandicoot games age worse than mario 64 or is it really worse how big is the myth of mario 64 compared to how it really is that's a weird question to me I would say that Crash Bandicoot has aged worse than Mario 64, having played both fairly recently. But, but I feel like the question implies that those games were as good as Mario 64, which I don't I think, think the, everyone, anyone ever made make that claim. There were, there, there were claims of that to some extent at the time, that Crash Bandicoot was at least on the level of Mario 64. And that really has more to do with the fact that uh, again, a lot of the people buying them were children who had one console and thus were very attached to the one thing they had. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like in general, I, w I would say that like they have aged in general with their stature. Like Crash Bandicoot with age is like this is a pretty fun platformer. You jump on boxes and uh, it's 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 only a 3D platformer by the most desperate of technicalities but you know it's, it's a fun little game uh, Crash Bandicoot uh, where, whereas Mario 64 uh, you could and I would argue uh, there, there are definitely things that have, that have aged poorly about it people would not respond well to its camera now uh, and in general the uh, controls are a little slippery, slipperier than you remember. But the thing to, that I would say about Mario 64 is that it templated the idea of open-level design in a way that, like, certainly there were other games that tried to be open for it, but, like, in the most influential fashion possible, like, the tenets of open-level design are 
essentially laid down by Mario 64. Uh, you could and I would uh, draw lines from, say, Mario 64 to Body Harvest to Grand Theft Auto 3. Uh, like, because of, like, philosophies of design that transfer and shake through the industry. Um, in general, like, the, the way that you uh, landmark and telegraph level design in 3D, like, owes a tremendous step to Mario 64. And the, but the other thing about it is that uh, Mario 64 is aided and abetted in its aging by the fact that very few things wanted to, were capable of taking it on directly at what it was doing. Like, that kind of objective-based 3D platformer was, uh, was somewhat in vogue, but it was very hard to do on the PlayStation because of, uh, hardware limitations for, like, large open worlds were just kind of not there. Uh, the, uh, the, the general, uh, which generally, like, since the PlayStation was down on a platform, uh, you, you see other games that kind of try it, like, you'll see, uh, Insomniac's Spiral games are kind of trying to be open uh, 3D world designs, but the tech isn't really there, so they're nowhere near as... Uh, like, there's not a level in Spyro that, in any of the Spyros, really, that is as open in its design than uh, as, like, bob Battlefield, the first level in Mario 64. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. It's, it's, it is technically a pain. Uh... And you see Rareware's work that kind of draws inspiration from Mario 64 quite openly, but uh, is, is, you know, trying to sort of continue that, like, what what open design is and what it's for and how it's done. Uh, all of those kind of trace back to Mario 64, but none of them are quite, this, like, they're not as... trying to think of the words for how to describe this uh but mario 64 is like the the thing the like what you're describing as the myth of mario 64 refers more to like uh you know whether it is still a great game to play and i i would argue it still is uh but it's still you know something that uh, anytime that it gets re-released, there is, like, a group of people who, you know, will play it, maybe not for the first time, but, you know, for the first time in a long time, and honestly, sometimes for the first time, like, sharing it with their children and such, you know, it still has a, it still has a pullover people. It's, it's still, you know, it's, it's restrained in a way that a lot of its contemporaries aren't, even though it's also larger than most of them. <laughs> Yeah, which is which is a weird thing to say, but I mean, like, even though the levels are huge, they're they're generally designed in such a way as to make them feel uh, digestible. Whereas a lot of things that tried to be huge at that time uh, aren't digestible at all. Um, but as for how Crash Bandicoot's aged, it's aged consummate with 
what it is, which is that it was a very evolutionary uh, take on something like a Donkey Kong country is probably the closest analog. Uh, like infamously uh, and quite publicly uh, over the years, people who worked at Naughty Dog at the time have referred to, like Crash Bandicoot was uh, referred to internally as the Sonic's ass game. <laughs> Because they had just sort of taken some a, a 2D platformer like Sonic the Hedgehog, and they just rotated it 90 degrees, uh, and that made sense for the hardware they were working with. It allowed them to make a much more stable, much uh, cleaner, nicer looking uh, platformer than just about everyone else who was making games at the time uh, on the PS1. But you know, it, it inherently limited what they could do, which forced the game into a sense of restraint that a lot of it, as mentioned, a lot of its contemporaries don't have. Uh, if you compare either game to, say, Sony's Blasto, uh, you will see the wisdom in their choices. <laughs> uh, anyone play Blasto? No. People. Never heard of it. It was a first-party platformer from Sony that was mostly selling itself on voice acting by Phil Hartman. It's a really, really bad 3D platformer. Shame. Never mind. I have heard of that one just for the Phil Hartman connection. Yeah, he was he was killed about a month after it came. Out, but... Yeah, Just in peace. But yeah, um, like the the myth of Mario sixty four, in as much as it exists, would be like the idea that it's the greatest game of all time, and like there's honestly, depending upon how much you're putting influential influential into that factor, there's an argument to be made. Still. But the it's thing definitely is definitely one of the one of the seminal games of its genre. Yeah, it's, just, it's... it's one of the one of the most important three D games ever made. Uh, but you know, I, I, I would argue that uh, well, I couldn't say that it hasn't aged today. Like twenty six years on, it's still you know an incredible game to play and still fun to fun. So uh, I wouldn't really say that. Uh, like I would say that they. That they're about on even keel with where they were back then, as long as you're understanding that they're old games now. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Let's get through this. This will put us at 99 questions down. Speaking of myth, am I weird to think Kojima games are actually very niche products? Feels like you have to be into the specific things he likes to enjoy his games. So puzzles me is how popular Metal Gear Solid is. It's just the first game that's understandable because it's just past each of action movies, but why two, three, and four? Was it that by the time the name MGS alone carried the franchise, and there were a lot of people just quietly think that uh, they were great games without actually playing them. I think plenty of people played them. I think the thing that you're uh, losing sight of here is that a lot of these games actually sold significantly worse over the course of time. Mm. Uh, like... Metal Gear Solid 1 uh, did kind of crazy numbers, and I think Metal Gear Solid 2 sold a little better, but at the time was not well-liked uh, for its plot. Just ask Wheels. Uh, Which one? Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, Excuse me. Listen, I could sit here for an hour and talk to you about how uh, Metal Gear Solid 2's like story has gotten weirdly prescient in a lot of weird ways. Uh, 
I don't think you'd be uh, too patient with that conversation anymore. Than oh, the story I was not the problem. I'm just gonna. You didn't like the gameplay? No, not really. That's wild. It just felt like a bad version of Metal Gear Solid One. Which is also part of its story's themes, although I do think that it was pretty much <laughs> giving up on the idea of producing <laughs> what a uh, an improvement on Metal Gear Solid One. It's like Metal Gear Solid Two is not shy about the idea that like. All the events are like obvious analogs to Metal Gear Solid One, and like how part of the game is seemingly an incapacity, a, a lack of confidence in the idea of making a better game than Metal Gear Solid One. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like you know, like Metal Gear Solid Three sold noticeably worse than Metal Gear Solid Two by by a fair margin because tastes had changed and. Uh, people had felt burned by Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, so even though Metal Gear Solid 3 now has a reputation as being the best in the series in a lot of ways, uh, you know, at, at the time it was it was definitely a slump in terms of sales. And then MGS4 does super, super well in terms of sales because what the fuck else was Sony releasing in like mid July of 2008? What year was this? Is that it? And I had to sit through so many fucking articles that were like, this is the year that the PS3 becomes worthwhile, and it never did. Let's see. At what point did the PS3 finally become worthwhile? Well, I just made the argument that it never did. Um, uh, <laughs> that's the accurate it's argument. Very much in the eye of the beholder. June 12, 2008. In June of 2008, the PS3 was uh, recovering from the fact that the... I think in late 2007, they'd uh, been forcibly drawn to the conclusion that no one gave a single fuck about Heavenly Sword. Uh, let me see if I can find what else was... When did they uh, finally give up on Killzone and uh, what was the other one, Resistance? Killzone 2 wasn't even out yet. Uh, like, that wouldn't come out until, like, 2010. That's forever. Um, what's the 20... It was, it was 2009... It's one of those things where, like, they, they just needed they needed something to be a hit. There's, like, Resistance 3 and Killzone 3 are both 2011 for some ungodly reason. Like, why were you... I don't even think that they were more than, like, a month or two apart. Like, what the fuck were you doing, Sonny? So let's see, Killzone 3 was February of 2011. And Resistance 3... Okay, maybe they were more like six months apart. Let me see. Yeah, they were like six months apart. Um, the answer is both of them are bad. Um, but let's see. 2007 PS3 games. Uh, so, the, their, big, their big deals to this point that were PS3 specific were the first Uncharted, which was not the one that made the series huge. It did well, but like the series became huge with Uncharted 2. Uh, they had just like profoundly shit the bed with Blair in 2000 was that 2008 or 2007 okay they profoundly shit the bed with Blair in 2007 uh Heavenly Sword 2007 that feels right must have yep September 2007 they could not they could not make people care about Heavenly Sword uh just, just tons of like things you could not pay people to uh, care about that they had hitched their wagon to. So MGS4, like as a guaranteed seller, they needed that game. 
more than they needed just about anything else. So, you know, like at the time, like FF13 would have been their next like guaranteed third-party seller uh, that was not coming from Sony's own roof. So, and you know, like we all saw how that turned out anyway. Uh, but you know, just just this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. Um, like, like, MGS4 becomes huge because Sony desperately needs it to be huge. Uh, and it's promising to follow up and quote-unquote make up for uh, MGS2's plot. Uh, and I, I do think, like, the, the answer is that a bad-selling MGS game is still selling, like, 4 million. That's still nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, th they are niche in comparison to something like Call of Duty, <laughs> but you know, that's that does not mean much. Uh, like, the the answer is that they still, you know, anything that's going to sell well into like the five million range is like, you know. It's, it's niche only in the sense that video games themselves can be considered niche in that sense. But like, or I suppose only in the sense that AAA video games are niche. But, you know. Hmm. Uh, this next How big does a niche, niche have to get before it becomes something else? Yeah. Let's hit this next one because it's also an FGS question, so I can ramble about that. And since it's question 100. Uh, continuing the topic, it's weird to see how the public changed its opinion of MGS4. One remember when it was praised as an Apex game, only trash years later because of how many cutscenes it had. It was trash at the time for how many cutscenes it had. It was just a question of when people decided that they thought the cutscenes were bad. <laughs> uh, MGS4 is uh, very much a compromised sort of game uh, for a multitude of reasons. Uh, it's a game that definitely feels like it was made out of a sense of obligation. Uh, and it definitely feels like it was a game designed to answer questions that were not supposed to have answers. Uh, like, well, that doesn't sound Metal very Gear, good. Metal Gear Solid 2 was not a game designed to have a lot of its questions answered, uh, because Metal Gear Solid 2 thematically is a game a lot about how uh, Questions will have their like questions can information can be controlled, uh, and the nature of how uh, the internet would affect information control, but also about how you know uh, structures can outlive their use or even the people that set them into motion and become self perpetuating in a way that makes them very hard to tear down. Uh, which is why. Uh, you know, like, MGS2's stinger at the end is that, like, you spent the entire game, uh, like, at least one faction of the game has spent the entire game trying to figure out, uh, the members of high-ranking members of an organization called the Patriots that has been controlling information for, for God only knows how long. Uh, one of the characters, like, gets this information, breaks open the encryption on it, and finds that it lists people who have been dead for hundreds of years. Uh, and, you know, like, who who are the Patriots? Doesn't actually matter. 
wasn't really the point. The point is more the nature of the, like, a system of, like, control is self-perpetuating by its nature. To maintain control, it has to be able to perpetuate itself. As people get pulled into it, you know, the reasons behind why or how it controls things are kind of lost. And it just continues because that's how social order functions. Uh, so, you know, that, that that's not a question that's really meant to have answers. Like, finding who the Patriots are, like, and the Patriots turning out to have been turned into AIs at some point, is meant to be a reference to that kind of, uh, like, the nature of uh, self-sustaining uh, systems of control. But, you know... It's like kind of a MacGuffin really... in the story. It's like, the list isn't that important as the fact that these people are there. Yeah, the, like... the, 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 the structure that was put in place exists and cannot be easily dismantled. And, uh, like... You know, like a lot of these things, we're not we're not really meant to have answers. There's there's always a rumor floating around that I can never find like concrete sourcing on that the that the MGS four that came out was not the MGS four that was initially pitched, and that the first draft of the script was something uh, that was bound to piss a lot of people off. Probably more people than MGS two had pissed off. Oh, really? Uh, because allegedly, the original plan for MGS two, uh, not MGS two, MGS four was that it was going to involve uh, Snake and Otacon uh, essentially going on a world tour where they fucking destroy as many Metal Gears as they possibly can. Because, like, the a background element of Metal Gear Solid 2 was that schematics for different Metal Gears have been sold on the black market in various countries. And, like, tons of countries now had access to both uh, tanks that could fire nukes anywhere in the world and uh, instructions on how to build them. Uh so the idea was that you were just like, uh, that this would be a game about Snake and Alicon trying to destroy as many Metal Gears as possible and delete essentially all information about them. And that it would allegedly end with them being uh, caught and put to death by some one government or another. Probably the US government, but who knows. Uh, and that essentially, when that pitch went through, basically no one was willing to work on that. And so the, this this version of the plot that exists mostly to try to answer questions from MGS2 comes out, and it's you know it, it ends up being dissatisfying because it's kind of a game that if you liked MGS2, it didn't actually resolve like it didn't do anything with the themes of MGS2. Like if you didn't like MGS2, then it didn't actually fix what you didn't like about it, and it tied itself in so innately to it, and spent all its time trying to resolve what was going on with it, that it didn't actually... Uh, it wasn't going to win over anyone who didn't care about MGS2. And so what you end up with is a game that, like, kind of has no audience, other than people who are just there for whatever MGS is going to do. And, like, I admit I'm partly in that, and it's still probably my least favorite of the games. <laughs> Uh, it's just not. Uh, it's just not. <laughs> Doesn't sound very interesting. It, yeah, it, it exists to tie up loose ends that aren't that interesting and weren't meant to be tied up. Um, it it tries to uh, circle in MGS three, but it's as far from MGS three in the timeline as humanly possible, so it doesn't really have much 
it most of what it does with the MGS3 cast is reveal that all of them were monsters. <laughs> Every single one. <laughs> uh, in, in ways that super do not feel like they were uh, thought of at the time MGS3 was created. It was just a way to tie MGS3 to MGS1 and thus to the rest of the franchise. Like, you find out that uh, your uh, movie-obsessed uh, mission control helper who lets you save uh, did uh, deeply unethical human experiments that turned uh, Great. that turned one of uh, Snake's friends from Metal Gear 2 into a uh, horrible like cyborg that longs for death. Uh, oh. And there's yeah, like that, like that really was incongruous, and like maybe that was part of the point, but it doesn't feel like it was something that, they, that had been thought of. It was just a way to tie all the games together. But yeah, there's there, there's a bunch of these that uh, like it, it's just designed to wrap up the games and put the franchise in a position. I think in part for Kojima to be able to say, "Never ask me for anything again," uh, because any anything that was actually a loose end was tied up in that game. Peace Walker and Five are just sort of creating and telling their own little story. But. Yeah, uh, I, I do think to, to speak to the nature of this, like the the way public opinion changes on tremendously hyped games, like this is an observable cycle. Like, unless unless a game is just badly put together, it's very hard for something as anticipated and as in the public eye as. MGS4 was to get an immediate, like, venomous response. Like, that builds up over time. Uh, and it builds up over less time than it once did. Uh, but, you know, it takes it takes a bit for the tide of public opinion to turn, because the people who liked it move on, and the people who did not like it go back and look at it and talk about it again and again. And, you know, that's, that's just how that goes. Like, that's <laughs> that's how things go. That's how a lot of things uh, that like were huge sellers develop extremely negative reputations. Uh, but you know, contemporaneous to it would be something like Grand Theft Auto Four, which was you know huge success, tons of uh, you know bazillion copies sold, uh, accolades from basically every website on earth, uh, and then about a year later. Uh, everyone is just dunking on how how uh, your fucking cousin won't stop calling you to go bowling when you're just trying to shoot people. Like, you know, the, those, you know, once the... The narrative often ends up being shaped by the hardcore fans. And so a game can do tre tremendous business, like MGS4 did, and then... The people who just played it and thought, yep, that was an experience, I'm done, uh, and moved on, don't have a reason to ever talk about it again. But the hardcore fans will be interrogating whether it was worthwhile for years to come. <laughs> and that's, uh, I believe, currently where we are with The Last of Us Part Two. <laughs> <laughs> A game that uh, came out to rapturous praise, 
and tons of people played it and liked it well enough. And then the hardcore fans, or hardcore people who did not like it in this case, uh, are now the only ones who are going to be talking about it. So, you know, sometime in the next five years, we're going to be seeing uh, think pieces about whether uh, whether people fucked up on saying that that was a great game, or whether people are being too mean to it now. Uh, other examples I can think of this, Bioshock Infinite uh, came out to rapturous political approval, uh, and then, you know, over the years, the reputation of it has become at kindest divided, uh, but mostly uh, mocking the sheer amount of hype for what it was and what it was trying to do, uh, and its complete fumbling of whatever its intended message was. I say whatever its so intended was that message a was. Was that a pun when you said rapturous? Uh, not intentionally, but it does count as well played. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it was, uh, it, it came, you know, like, the, the, the general consent, like, I say, uh, whatever its intended story was, because you could honestly have a, a great deal of, uh, argument as to what the fuck that game was trying to say, but, uh, the point is that what it said, it didn't say well, and if, and what it said may have reflected poorly on the people saying it, but... Well, as, yeah. far, as far as uh, The Last of Us 2 goes, I'm reserving judgment until I see if it makes Naughty Dog make much worse games for years to come. Uh, allegedly, they're making more Last of Us, so... Gross. Be the current claim is that they're making some sort of multiplayer-specific Last of Us and some other Last of Us project. I guess there's the Last of Us shitting factory. Yeah, I liked the first game. It's very good. It would have been nice to just leave it there. Uh, I don't. I don't like the the desperation that comes with calling it part two, which very much felt like ah uh, uh, yes, this original story was not complete in its current form. It needed to be filled out by this additional part. And, I don't know. It feels it feels kind of desperate. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I think the claim is that after Last of Us multiplayer, whatever the fuck, they're making some sort of semi, like semi episodic sort of thing, uh, some sort of semi episodic thing that is going to be uh, in the Last of Us universe. So that'll be boring. I feel like. Making long-form franchises and apocalyptic media is just like just poorly thought out. <laughs> At best, you end up in this situation where it's like, I don't care what any of these people do anymore. They suck. Yeah. Like, it's all misery. It's all misery. It's misery all the way down. But, yeah. That's why I don't generally watch zombie TV shows or movies. I do think I do think it's funny that like you get to the uh, speaking of zombie TV shows. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I do think it's very funny that I didn't even realize that Walking Dead had finally been canceled. Had it? Thank God. Yeah, like last year, or maybe it was this year. When did this fucking end? Can't think this year. Don't fucking care. It it concluded in twenty twenty two. But this is like the same reason, like that I don't fucking care about Fallout anymore. It's just... 
it, I mean, I, I, I aside from the this. fact that it's horribly depressing, like it's all this shit is just played out. Yeah, it was just like I mean, I mean, my my broader issue with Fallout is just like I'm fucking done with like with like parodies of fifties shit. It's like, man, no no one in your target audience has any context for 50, the fifties except parodies of it. Shut yeah. the fuck up. Enough. <laughs> That's why Outer Worlds. Yes. Yeah. Outer Worlds works because it's like, oh, this is our dystopia. This is the logical endpoint of our dystopia. <laughs> the logical endpoint of our dystopia, but at the same time, it somehow looks like a combination of Gilded Age, hyper, like robber baron, baron, uh, robber baron period, and pre-Glasnost Soviet bloc. Yeah, it's it's got a, a weird broader, it's got a more diverse uh, range of it. Man, I can't wait for other worlds too. I'm so glad that's happening. <laughs> that's why we need Psy Games to revive Metal Max with a completely different bizarro take on post-apocalyptic. Yes. <laughs> it's coming. We'll get something. Yep, it'll be something. I I would say that I would hope that it a better sort of something, except I know it will at least be better than Xeno. <laughs> Nowhere to go but up. As a baseline. It has to be better than Xeno. Yes. Could scarcely be worse. Metal Dogs, a game all about a puppy with a machine gun blowing up ants, is still better than Xeno. It mm -hmm. just got an update for some reason. <laughs> I need to check that out. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you end up saying. Yeah. Man, I can't wait for Outer Worlds too. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh... Yeah, let's see. I think that's about as much as my throat can take tonight. So. Alright, I'll start wrapping this fuse up. I believe I've said shit like 12 times during this podcast. Okay then, shit, fuck, shit, 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 shit. Crap, <laughs> ass. Sorry, I'm just saying it was weird. <laughs> no, it was weird. I don't know why. I'm not, usually not afraid to swear. I don't know what the fuck I, I just assume doing. That, I, just, I just assume that like you have kids around a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's do our plugs. Still got one more plug in time for the author's birthday sale. Yes. Oh, let's see. We have let's see. T minus how many days? So we got one. T minus ten days till the start of the author's birthday sale for Princesses of the Pizza Parlor, available on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Um, first episode will be free. Most of the other episodes will be at least half price. It really depends on how Amazon is feeling about me. At, <laughs> I set these up. It's finicky sometimes, and I keep changing some of the parameters. Anyway, it, everything will be at a severe discount, at least, for at least the entire week. So 9, 10, 11, 12, 13th of January. Yeah, so Princesses of the Pizza Parlor, um, if you enjoy tabletop RPGs, if you enjoy playing tabletop RPGs, if you enjoy watching other people play tabletop RPGs, and this is an entire genre on YouTube these days, go figure, and you can have all of that in, uh, in this case for the terms of the sale, ebook format, um, no sale on the Dead Tree editions, just because I'm not sure how that would actually work. Probably a lot of more money tied up in that anyway. <laughs> I mean, I mean. Let, let's be honest. I actually, I mean, if you actually just went out and bought all of the eBooks right now, it would actually make me quite a bit more in 
yeah. royalties than the print copies would, while at the same time costing you about 30% less. Yep. And then to turn it into something else. Hmm. Okay, so, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor by Michael Yarimizu, Y-A-R-I-M-I-Z-U. Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Give it a shot. There'll never be uh, there'll never be a cheaper time to do it, and it's honestly never going to be that expensive to begin with. So, <laughs> till next birthday. <laughs> yeah, maybe then it'll be even cheaper. But pr- I wouldn't wait an entire year. Come on, hmm. come on. Uh, Wheels, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, you can catch the stream on twitchtv Wheels, Usually Wednesday nights. We're actually recording this one on Thursday night. Uh, and on that same channel, we do Sunday Night Shenanigans at midnight Eastern Time on Sundays. Uh, it's been Pokemon lately. We're planning some Haloing in the near future. Yep, now that I have an Xbox. Yes. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if we're going to do that next time or more Pokemon. We'll have to see. Uh, but I do... I as... then Joe should be finished with the story of... Yes, at some point I do want to try like some of the higher level uh, raids. Yeah, that's what uh, I was thinking. On Sunday nights, but we'll see. So yeah, we're gonna do some Halo. Uh, yes, we are beyond overdue for uh, adventures and platforming, but the holidays have been busy. So, but that <sighs> there will be so more awkward. of that. There will be more of that at some point. Uh, and I uh, definitely want to do a crash up, crash four episode of that, which we talked about today. Hmm. So we'll see. But more all on Twitch.tv/askwheels, and also check out uh, the RPG backtrack on RP Gamer. I was on the last episode, which is all about Cthulhu saves Christmas, and really to some extent, about how uh, Z-Boyd's games have progressed over the years. I think it was a very interesting conversation. And also, I had to do a whole thing during the intro, and people should hear it. I always have to do those, I th- but I try to tell people not to hear them. I think, <laughs> I think this one came out decently. I, I am the worst part of any given intro. Yes. I'll just say it was a play on uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. That makes sense. Yes, so check that out. Very fun episode, and check out all their past and future episodes. And uh, if Tam's not here, you should check out twitch.tv slash rpgamer, where we have a whole team of people from the site the who Twitch stream team. stuff. Uh, I'm not sure the exact schedule, but generally, like during the day and then up until like midnight Easter time at night, there's generally people on. Uh, so you should check that out. Any sort of RPG you're into, you'll probably find someone playing it at some point. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Hooray! Uh, as for me, Still, still, uh, slowly, slowly, as I have time and inclination, working on uh, plumbing the depths of the history of East, but still not ready to show that to anyone. Uh, as far as uh, other things to plug, 
Uh, I only have one social media that I like would oh, I leave open at this stage, and that's co-host. You can find me as Fanboy Master on co-host. Uh, it's chill. I post shit post video game screenshots and weird rants. Um, oh, that's uh, hold on. I forgot to pimp yeah, my I, gaggle of social media accounts. Uh, I'm mainly on Mastodon, uh, specifically Mastodon.lol. Uh, <laughs> squeals, obviously, yes. Um, and also co-host as Ask Wheels, and also that Hive, but I'm not so sure about Hive, but mainly co-host and Mastodon is where you can find my stuff. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Kinda, you can ask yes. Uh, but mainly ask us stuff on Discord, the Airbnb Gamer Discord. Like, I'm kind of over most of these social media sites. <laughs> They hurt us. They exist to hurt us. Yeah. Um, Twitter becomes worse by the moment. Oh, um, <laughs> oh. Did you get the logging in and out issue from yesterday? That's incredible. Uh, I did not, but I also... Like some sort of server wrap yeah. and fuck everything. Uh, I, I must have missed that. I don't know if it's people on the app or people... I don't use the it was, app it was anymore. The web, it was the web interface. Okay. Yeah, I must not have used it been checking it then good uh honestly i have i used to be checking it pretty frequently it's just declining by the day yeah i i'm checking it much less frequently yeah it's just like oh god this this site Uh, is uh if you want to see a social media site die in real time (laughs) uh want to see someone play brewster's millions uh (laughs) But yeah, uh, you can ask us questions through the Discord. You can get to Discord by going to rpgamer.com and clicking the community tab. Uh, we always love hearing questions. Uh, you can also ask us questions underneath the uh, in the comments section underneath the very episode you're listening to right now. Uh, don't try to ask us questions through like iTunes Store or whatever. We, we don't check that. Um, <laughs> God, has ever but, written us a review there? Fuck. We we got one years and years hence uh, where someone was saying that we were knowledgeable but our microphones sucked and that is both are a hundred percent true. Yes. Uh, That's what happens when you do a show for free <laughs> and for fun. One day actually one day we'll have a setup that will allow me to plug in a better microphone. So today is not that day and I apologize to everyone listening. Uh, in any yes. case, if uh, you, you can ask if, questions. Yes, if you would like us to get better ma- ma- microphones, hop on the Twitch and hit that subscribe button. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think that is the most directly you've ever asked listeners for money. It's months. true. Uh, in any case. Uh, yeah, uh, so... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you can ask us questions in the comments section under this very episode or in the Discord. Uh, we're always happy to take either. Uh, thank you to Fireminer for the questions. The big list that keeps us going in the lean weeks. But otherwise, mm-hmm. see you, see you, space cowboy. See ya.